You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Welcome to episode 360 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I think that means we have rotated all the way around and are headed the same direction we were 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me and laughing uproariously is David Grubbs, who is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. How's it going, Grubbs? Oh, I'm fine. Was that was that uproarious? I'm sure I could do better. Uh, you know, the thing I'm proudest of in my life, and I wish I could put it on my CV, I, I can't <laughs> even remember what episode it was, but there's an episode when I talk about Disney's Robin Hood, and I talk about Maid Marian having to... Oh, yes. Uh, ...having to control her instinct to eat <laughs> Lady Cluck, and I thought you were going to fall out of your chair, you were laughing so hard. I've never been prouder. <laughs> that was a golden moment. I don't remember what episode it is. It's not the Robin Hood episode. Gosh. Maybe maybe one of our listeners can tell me so I can go back and yeah. live my, my, the sole moment of triumph in my otherwise pathetic life. <laughs> I, I think we were doing something medieval. Um, Probably. Maybe it was the introduction to the Middle Ages. Maybe so. I don't know. Maybe so. Anyway, uh, here today, as he was here then, is Nathan Gilmore, who's a professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan? Yes, I am. What's new on the network? All right, so there is a Profiles interview uh, coming up with Peter Lindsay. He's an education scholar, and his book is called The Craft of University Teaching. It's a pretty interesting little Aristotelian romp. We've also got a Sectarian Review episode uh, that should be live by the time our listeners get this one on Office Space, a movie that dropped in, I believe, 1999. I think it's a 20-year anniversary sort of episode uh anything else going on in the network yeah yeah the christian feminist podcast has a new episode on hannah gadsby's stand-up special nanette and i think it's more broadly about women in comedy very good well the episode of this show that you are currently listening to is on a 1930s era essay by the Japanese novelist Junichiro Tanizaki, I think is how it's pronounced. You know, I'm not great at pronouncing non-English words. Uh, the the essay is called In Praise of Shadows, and there'll be a link to it on the show notes on our website, christianhumanist.org, or you can just type in In Praise of Shadows, and I think it's probably the first result. It, it's, I don't know, 40 pages or so, but it's a, a pretty quick read, I thought. This essay is, uh, in its way, anti-Western. Uh, it's, it's about Japanese aesthetics, and it, it contrasts Japanese aesthetics largely with Western aesthetics, especially American aesthetics. And even the title, uh, In Praise of Shadows, is, is kind of quietly anti-Western because the word shadow has been freighted from the very beginning of Western metaphysics 
Nathan, will you tell our listeners what Plato finds finds so objectionable about shadows and what that might have to do with Japanese aesthetics, if anything? Certainly. The contrast between light and dark is certainly uh, all the way through uh, Plato. Uh, A couple of the famous moments, you know, the light and the dark horses that pull the allegorical chariot and the Phaedrus. Uh, The dark horse is the one that is not to be looked at. Uh, It's very energetic, but ultimately... Uh, it is inferior to the light horse, which isn't as energetic, doesn't drive as hard, uh, but ultimately has control and has proportion uh, and has discipline and so on and so forth. Uh, you get that kind of you know light-dark contrast in a lot of his uh, end-of-dialogue allegories, but probably the one that is most uh, relevant to Tanazaki's work uh, is the trio of, of allegories. Uh, or parables, as I call them, at the towards the end of the Republic. Uh, so one of them is the parable of the eye. Uh, the eye is in the same space as the object, uh, but the eye cannot see the object unless there is a third element, namely light. Uh, and Socrates go on, goes on to explain that you know the light in this allegory or this parable. Uh, represents goodness, it represents knowledge, it represents those things that are necessary uh, actually to understand the reality of the world. The second allegory is the, is the allegory of the line segment, uh, and in this allegory uh, you have things that are opaque and indistinct and so on and so forth in the first two segments of the line, and then in the third and the fourth segments they get progressively more illuminated. Um, and then, you know, the one that uh, most people read if they read an excerpt from the Republic, uh, you've got the allegory of the cave, in which shadows, uh, in a very straightforward sense, are at least a couple removes from ultimate reality. So they certainly have some mode of being, uh, but they do not exist in as full a sense as the objects that they are imitations of. Uh, and even beyond that, the objects that get between the light and the wall that produce the shadows are themselves not as real as uh, the real things after which they are modeled. All right. Uh, finally, you know, in you know that same dialogue, Republic, uh, you have a, a another bizarre uh, parable at the end, the myth of Ur, uh, in which you know one of the rewards in this system of reincarnation that comes around. Uh, is the ability to ascend to the heavens and to be among the celestial spheres and pure light and so on and so forth. So, you know, you can see this inheritance really, you know, come down to us, not only in the Christian tradition, to be sure, like the first chapter of John, the, you know, the, uh, the light has come into the darkness, but the darkness has not either overcome it or understood it, depending on what translation you're in. But even before that, in... Roman-occupied territories that were decidedly anti-Greek, anti-Roman, texts like the War Scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls has just this persistent, pervasive uh, light versus dark motif. And some people have speculated on, you know, a Zoroastrian uh, influence on that. I'm more inclined to think that, you know, that is the appropriation of that strong light and dark contrast uh, precisely by the people who are trying to resist that cultural and military incursion. So, you know, Tanizaki in this essay uh, doesn't go into all that history. 
uh, but he certainly seems to assume that light uh, is going to be at the center of Western aesthetics at the very least uh, and probably metaphysics by implication. Um, Michael, are there any other uh, of Plato's dialogues you would want to uh, highlight, so to speak, as I make a dumb pun that I didn't even intend? No, the, you hit the ones I was I was thinking about. And I mean, what's interesting to me is he doesn't really discuss metaphysics at all. So I don't know if he had Plato in mind uh, or if it's just that our present day aesthetics really do flow naturally from Platonic metaphysics, which have so dominated Western metaphysics. You know, I mean, I think what he has in mind are things like brightly lit rooms, which I don't think when people decide to light their rooms brightly, they sit down and think, well, I got to do this because Plato says the shadows are bad. <laughs> but I, I wonder, seeing it from the outside as we do through Tanizaki, I wonder if maybe that's not deep down what's happening, that, that maybe our preference for brightly lit rooms really is some sort of distant reflection of Plato's views on the soul. I think that's certainly one possibility. I mean, the other one that we're going to get into a little bit later, so I won't uh, reveal too much, uh, is a more historicist ex explanation of it, that, you know, when a metaphysical system comes from a much more sunshiny culture, so to speak, that light tends to get privilege. And I don't think it's a uh, coincidence that, you know, the Hebrew and the Greek cultures come to us from, you know, Mediterranean environments. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I'll, I'll point out I like my rooms dimly lit. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I I kind of vary. I mean, if I am alone in a room, I prefer dim light. Uh, but if I am in a gathering of people, I prefer a little bit more light. Yeah, I suppose that's true. There's something kind of creepy about sitting sitting in near darkness with other people, isn't there? Well, you got to be able to see them when they come at you. <laughs> suppose you do. <laughs> well, the essay begins with a description of why it's difficult for a fan of traditional architecture, art, and modes of life to live in the modern world. And of course, we're talking about not what most of our listeners are going to think of as traditional, but what a Japanese man writing in the 1930s would think of traditional. So, David, what, what is it that he wants from his living spaces, and why is it so hard to get it? One thing that this, this particular essay presumes that we don't... Um, he, he mentions it later on in the essay, um, but it's not... Uh, it, it's, it's something that he assumes his reader knows, right? But, but which, you know, I think most Western audiences probably don't, is when he's, uh, when he's writing in the 1930s, just how long it's been that Japanese culture has been adapting from, uh, adapting to Western culture, arts, and technology, and forms of, of uh, education and organization of society. Um, so this is this is not someone who's talking who who somehow, you know, ten years ago or even twenty years ago this change happened. Um, you know, we're talking about a transition that began in Japanese culture um, in the eighteen sixties and seventies. Um, so so this is. It, 
this is this is not this is not fresh change. On the other hand, this is someone who, in his in his lifetime, he can still remember enough remainders of the old ways of doing things that those comparisons are still possible. So, um, he I, I I don't know maybe like a maybe like a second generation curmudgeon, not not a first generation reactionary, so to speak. Well, and there's a there's a distinction to be made, and I've probably made it on the podcast before, uh, between nostalgia, which is when you're remembering something from your life and thinking, oh, things were much better then. So, like, if you and I wanted to go back to when Fresh Prince of Bel Air uh, aired on Thursday nights on NBC, and oh, what a what a, be- what a better world it would be if we could all sit down together and schedule an appointment to watch Fresh Prince of Bel Air. And who wouldn't want that, really? Right. So that's nostalgia. Um, Contrast that with antiquarian feeling, which is where you want to return to an era you you haven't actually experienced. Uh, and I, I think both of those are subject to a kind of gauzy reconstruction. But antiquarian feeling is really subject to a gauzy reconstruction, right? Because you're not even dealing with your memory. You're dealing fully with your imagination. And so the, the equivalent, I, I think, would be like somebody in the West today... Um, wanting to return to modes of life from before the Civil War, and there are people who want that, right? I mean, that's that's not a thing. That's Mainly white of. people. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, always have to ask who's antiquarian feeling, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's not, but it sounds to me like what you're what you're pitching for Tanizaki is something halfway between nostalgia and antiquarian feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I, by the time, I, which, you know, I didn't look up. Do, do you happen to know when he was born? Not off the top of my head, no. I think it must be in the 1860s or 70s. Okay. So so he would have been, he would have experienced growing up in that, in that time of change, right? So he would have seen, he would have seen, would have experienced the old ways of, 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 of doing things. Um, 1886 wikipedia says okay okay yeah yeah so things were things were already shaf- things were already shifting by the time he was born um, what a strange time to be alive though it's it's it, it, i wonder if 60 years from now we'll look back on the time we grew up in the the era of the fresh prince as i like to think of it as a similar transitionary period just because like that's right before the rise of the internet which which throws everything off balance um, and so I, I wonder if uh, if 20, 30 years from now, people are going to be nostalgic for the days of dial-up or, or they or have antiquarian feeling for the days of dial-up or they really will like romanticize sitting down on Thursday nights and watching The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I mean, I know. I think it actually aired on Monday nights, to be fair. <laughs> Maybe that depended on where you lived. I don't know. Um, my uh, my grandmother was, uh, he she grew up. She was a child in the Great Depression, and so for her, it's things like, "Why is it that my children and my grandchildren move away?" Because for her, all of her family was within walking distance growing up. Yeah, um, that's an enormous social change. Yeah, I mean, I mean, th- think just think about the 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 social changes that um, our grandparents and uh, have have seen. You know, those of us who still have living grandparents or, you know, God bless them, great grandparents in some cases. Um, that's that's just an amazing, an amazing amount of change that 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 they've experienced. And we sometimes 
disregard disregard that. So one of the things that I I just want to get as as I was reading this essay, it was may it was making me think also more carefully about the experience of someone in in our culture who has a similar frame of reference for for these kinds of these these kinds of changes. Um but to answer your question, what does he really want from his living space? Um his starting point, uh, he, he's complaining about light bulbs. Uh, light, light bulbs, uh, stoves, and um, toilets. And electric fans. Yeah, and electric fans. <laughs> like, electric fans are an abomination. The section on toilets, and I, I'm going to talk about it at the end if we don't get to it before. The section on toilets is my favorite part of the essay. I just think that's such a wonderful description of a toilet. But we'll we'll get there if, if you don't want to talk about it now. Well, that was definitely the point at which I kind of you know my, my started started you know perking up and then listening more closely because I'm like oh that's interesting because I I can um, his complaint is is the harshness of light bulbs and the ways that they just don't fit aesthetically into the traditional Japanese space that he's trying to create with this house that he's building. And he's thinking about, you know, what are, what are ways that we could accommodate this new technology? There's, there's, there's no place in a, in a, in the, in that layout of a traditional Japanese home for a big coal stove or a gas burning furnace or anything like that. He, he, he uses some, some kind of, uh, electric heating elements and puts it in the traditional space where a hearth would be in the center of a room. Right. Um, you know, he, he's, he's trying to solve these problems. The, the fans, fans are just evil. He doesn't like those. Um, and you don't even really need them if your walls are made out of paper. Um, you know, that, that's the other thing too, is sort of unthinking, you know what technologies cease being necessary when you don't didn't build in the same way first off um but i do want to talk about toilets cuz this was the place that was the strangest to me cuz when he's talking about harsh lights i immediately think of you know the office that i'm in where i'm yeah st- fluorescent lights yeah where i'm staring at a white wall and i have a fluorescent light above my head um if if I had any other source of light in my office, I would be using it. I I keep meaning to bring a lamp in. Yeah, I, I have three lamps in my otherwise fluorescent lit office, and I never turn the lights on, which means my office is really quite dark. But it's a very the light you have is a very pleasing, I think, at least to me. Well, my, but he would call that harsh. Yeah, well, it, it, exactly, exactly. Like the the light that to you is gentle is is would be would be harsh to him. But I can at least analogize. I can at least kind of think by analogy for that. But the way he describes toilets, he's describing this dimly lit, shadowed outhouse in which all the surfaces are wood and they're aged, and it's enough. It's open enough to nature that you can sort of hear fluttering leaves, and there's this sort of placid serene oneness with nature as you do your business well and he says he says many many haiku must have been written on such a toilet yeah yes indeed yeah i that i have no frame of reference for <laughs> what a beautiful description it is though like i want 
I want to go. I want to go use that toilet. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> and some of yeah, the- I don't know. My my grandma didn't get indoor plumbing till I was about eight or nine years old. And uh, yeah. I'll just go ahead and say that uh, hearing nature while you're doing what you need to do in an outhouse doesn't comfort my soul. <laughs> he describes it as like listening to this gentle rain and in my head because i read silence and that's basically the extent of my experience of japanese culture i think of japan as just constantly raining <laughs> right right um well and it, it seems like this is an outhouse with a view yeah I and like a secluded I... wooden glen woodland glen or something like it's like I'm having a really hard time imagining what this is like. And he wants a, a urinal made of cedar? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, and I, Lord knows, I googled around to try to find pictures of a traditional Japanese toilet, but I couldn't, I could not figure out what he was talking about. He calls it a morning glory toilet. Yeah. Uh, cedar shavings. And when I, when I what? typed in morning glory toilet, you'll be surprised to learn that uh, all I found were toilets shaped like flowers, which I don't think is what he has in mind. <laughs> Almost certainly not. I mean, what he describes is like, like he's going to do his business in like this mystical hermitage. Yes. And like, I would spend all of my time in that bathroom. Yeah, I would too. But <laughs> I'm going to the... read the description just so if you, if you haven't read this essay, so you can hear what we're talking about. As I have said, he writes, this is on page four of the version online. As I've said, there are certain prerequisites, a degree of dimness, absolute cleanliness, which is interesting for reasons we'll get to in a minute. Yeah. And quiet, so complete, one can hear the hum of a mosquito. I love to listen from such a toilet to the sound of softly falling rain, especially if it is a toilet of the Kanto region with its long, narrow windows at floor level. There one can listen with such a sense of intimacy to the raindrops falling from the eaves and the trees, seeping into the earth as they wash over the base of a stone lantern and freshen the moss about the stepping stone. And the toilet is the perfect place to listen to the chirping of insects or the song of the birds, to view the moon or enjoy any of those poignant moments that mark the change of the seasons. Here, I suspect, is where haiku poets over the ages have come by a great many of their ideas. <laughs> it sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Right? Like, yeah, I would, I would just, I would just never leave. You know, you know, people you know would be like, picture? Dave, get out of the toilet. We all need to go. And I'd be like, no, more haikus need to be written. That's right. I've only, I've only got four syllables in the last line. I, you know what I picture is I, I watched this. There's some show. I, I saw it at Christmas. I don't really watch live television, but we were at my parents' house. And, and they, uh, there was, there's some show about installing novelty aquaria. And they installed one at Tracy Morgan's house. And they took his, uh, they took his pool house and, and turned it into a bathroom with this giant, like, aquarium-sized aquarium with, with sharks in it and all sorts of stuff. And that's what I kept picturing because it's a separate building. That's a, There's a shower nice. in there and you can take a shower with the sharks. It sounds horrible, but uh, also kind of beautiful. Yeah. So, we are laughing, but I hear it in your voice too, Michael. Like, like there's a bit of a wistfulness about this because the spaces that he describes that are so hard to get and the light bulbs and the fans and the stark white porcelain of the toilet is making it hard to get um, is these serene, uh, serene contemplative spaces that seem to be just sort of restful and thoughtful to be in. And... 
and that's the thing that he's having a harder and harder time uh, finding and, and even creating. Um, he talks about the difficulties of building a new house um, that other people would want to come to because that's that's one of the things he 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 keeps uh, bringing up is the way these modern amenities become expectations they're demanded and yet he finds them so unpleasing and yet he wants people to come to his house <laughs> and so and so it must be and he tries he tries his various compromises um, choosing lights more selectively. I talked about, you know, what he figures out for heating, uh, for for heating the home. Um, you know, you talked about him wanting this morning glory urinal made of cedar, which we can't even imagine what he's talking about. Um, but he doesn't. He 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 fails. He ends up having to get, you know, the white, the white porcelain one. Anyway, it you know it. It, it's sad, but the but the thing that's lost is um, is these quiet spaces. So my question, I know we've been on this subject for a long, long time, but my question is, do you think it's actually easier now than it was in the 1930s to apportion your house the way he wants to? So on the one hand, the world is even more modern than it was then, right? And, and we've all seen pictures of of present-day Tokyo, and you can't imagine anything further from Tanizaki's aesthetic taste than that. But also, the internet probably makes it easier to buy all these things if you want them. I suspect if if you wanted to, if you wanted to do the the sorts of decoration that he recommends, it would probably be easier to get that stuff now than it would in the 1930s. There's probably somebody on Etsy who makes all of that uh, by hand, and you can just buy them that way. <laughs> And, and I, I just I, I wonder about that weird um, tension between things being ever more modern and yet it being easier to live in this kind of semi, maybe aesthetically old fashioned way. You couldn't actually go back to that mode of life, but you could make your apartment look like that or your house look like that. Well, but how much of the things that he describes really depends not on household ornament, but on architecture, landscaping, and the position of the house within the natural environment. Yeah, which would be which you would know, be harder in most places. Yeah, I might be today. able to put cedar up on the walls of my, you know, Tokyo high rise restroom, but I can't somehow magically make it next to a woodland where I can listen to the rain ripple through the leaves. But you could pipe in rain noises and things like that, which I don't think would have been possible in the 30s. And that's a poor substitute. I'm not saying it's the same thing. But in some ways, you can approximate the experience more easily now than you could then with the very technology that pushed that stuff out. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, this talk, this technology and living in the society this technology has created has, for the most part, generated people for whom those feelings are what you talked about before, not nostalgia, but a kind of antiquarian sense. And folks either don't even, f don't feel and don't, and if there is a need for such things, don't feel it because they've never had those spaces. And then you have, uh, you know, I, I think there's something within the soul of this particular writer that if you if you 
suggested that he accomplished some kind of technological airsats experience, piping in the rain noises, for instance, he would probably rise up and smite you. Yeah, I was just thinking that he'd probably backhand me. And and to be fair, he tries to do something like that, right? Because he wants to put in the paper doors. Yeah. But he, for whatever reason, he can't put in the paper doors. And he doesn't want glass doors. But So he, he tries to put paper doors on the inside and glass doors on the outside. And he gets neither. So so he doesn't get any of the advantages of either one of them. And I, I so, I mean, maybe he'd say the same thing about my recorded nature sounds in the bathroom. Although I think I'm going to try that. <laughs> yeah my office has very thin walls um and i do often uh use my little speaker to play rain noise while i'm working and don't want to hear people on the other side of the walls because you know that that noise is that noise is pleasing to me it makes me work harder or whatever uh and it, you know it, you'll be surprised to learn it doesn't rain that much in the winter in minnesota yeah i mean rain is the world going shh go to sleep I love it. Oh no! Not, for me, it's like work harder, work harder. <laughs> <laughs> really? No, no. Rain is rain is nap noise for me. But so I, I just I'm just interested in the way we can approximate this this antiquarianism via technology, and maybe it's just because I've been going to Disney World my whole life, and Disney World is all about approximating antiquarian stuff with technology. Yeah. Yeah. Nathan, you've been very quiet. Do you have any thoughts about this other than that you don't want to use an outhouse? Yeah. I... <laughs> We'll get to reasons why uh, that's the case a little later in the show, but uh, I would just be afraid a spider would crawl up that hole. You know? you know what? That is precisely the nature I had in mind because spiders do, in fact, make webs there, and they don't like it when you break it with, let's call them dropping objects, <laughs> excretions. <laughs> I, I say this as someone who has uh, used an outhouse. Dear listeners, our author brought up toilets. I, I just want to keep that firmly in the center of everyone's consciousness. We are not the ones who took this to the toilet. I think it may be the most beautiful paragraph ever written about a toilet. That, that I'll grant you. I'm not going to argue. But this, is, this thing is full of beautiful paragraphs. Like when he talks about lacquer, I want to just go and throw away every dish I own. And get more that are like his. And then turn the lights off. That's right, because if you if you looked at lacquered dishes under regular light, it would look terrible. You have to have dim light. One of the contrasts he makes between Western and Japanese aesthetics is that the West is very interested in purity. Nathan, why do the Japanese prefer jade to diamonds, and do you think they have a point there? Are we too are we too interested in in purity? Well, I'll have to confess first of all that this is one of the passages. Uh, that made me uncomfortable with the sort of national essentialism that was going on. Uh, and I really 1930. Was, <laughs> that it wasn't nearly as big a concern in the 1930s as it is now, but it was still uncomfortable. So the idea that he advances is that uh, Westerners, because we are so inherently white, we are also drawn to brilliant, shiny things, whereas uh, Orientals, as he calls them, as Edward Said screams at me from... <laughs> the afterworld uh uh you know prefer uh dark things and you know his example is jade you know this is a a stone more than a gem uh it is beautiful not because of its clarity or its reflection of light uh but rather in the multi-layered way that it uh stands opaque 
Uh, so it is a complex opacity uh, that gives Jade its its particular beauty. And he says that this is something you know that is uh, inherent to Oriental uh, views of art. So he extends that, and this is actually where I was going to talk about the toilets if we didn't get there earlier and you know spend 20 minutes on the pot. Um, when he talks about, you know, the terror of the Western bathroom where every spot of grime is removed and you want to, you know, polish it until there is no, uh, growth between the tiles. He should um, see my bathroom. He would, uh, he would love it. Well, that's, that's, that, that's the thought that occurred to me is that, you know, when, uh, for instance, I go into my kid's bathroom and I haven't cleaned it for a few days, I am very rarely impressed with the, uh, change in coloration that I see. Um, you know, that's, that's just not <laughs> something that I say, ah, what a lovely sight. Lovely um, gradations. And likewise, you know, if I, uh, accidentally, you know, heaven forbid, leave a spot on a dish, um, you know, I don't look at it and say uh, that I have improved it somehow. And yet what Tanizaki is getting at, and I think he's onto something, uh, is that these things are contingent. Uh, that, you know, to regard the lacquer dishes that we were talking about before, uh, means to appreciate, uh, not the way that they stand up under bright light scrutiny, uh, but rather the way that they blend in and the way that the dark soups that one eats out of these lacquer dishes blend into the dishes themselves and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, once again, the essentialism gives me the, the heebie-jeebies a little bit. Uh, but the argument that he makes, just to make the argument that he makes, uh, is that, you know, there's something inherently oriental about preferring uh, the obscure and the shadowed and so on and so forth uh, to the brilliant and the light and so on and so forth. And I mean, it, it seems to be running with uh, the things we were talking about before. So, you know, are, are there other passages, uh, Michael, that you have in mind here? No, I don't think so. I... It, it did clear up something for me about jade, which is not a, a mineral I've ever found particularly attractive. And it is because it's kind of cloudy. It doesn't, it doesn't have the purity that I've come to expect from my gemstones. So I found that very interesting. Though, and th this is something that I find interesting. He's, he's reacting a lot to the West and he's making those essentializing moves that make Nathan's skin crawl. But being able to cut gemstones in a way that makes them crystal clear is a relatively modern thing. Um, in, you know, previous eras, in, in Roman times and medieval times, if you look at a lot of early medieval gemstone work uh, in crowns and things of that nature, they're just sort of polished off almost almost the way you would see like a pella a, a pebble from a stone tumbler right they're 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 shiny but they're not they're not they're not completely clear um same thing with with ancient glass like ancient roman glass is frequently not not actually transparent um you know the 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 ancient world and then even you know, into, you know, the era that's, that's my favorite Angl in Anglo-Saxon England, the favorite gems, uh, the favorite gems are, are, are amber, uh, and, and even more than that, um, red gems like garnet, man, do they love garnet. 
and not because it's transparent. Um, so so some, a, a lot of these comments that he's making are actually relatively recent in terms of the Western world, but he seems to be essentializing the Western world in a way that doesn't necessarily consider also its own history. If that makes yeah, sense. And that's, that's, that seems fair to me um, because I certainly couldn't tell you the difference between Japanese aesthetics in 1933 and Japanese aesthetics in 900, you know, like I would have no idea about that, even though I, right. I know something about, I know, I know something about the development of Western aesthetics. So right. it, I'm not, I'm not faulting them for that, but you're right. I mean, maybe this is less of a difference between East and West than a difference between classical and modern. Yeah. I, I, I have a feeling that in, in a lot of ways you would be able to get someone you know, if 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 he if he keeps kind of looking back to, you know, the 1600s or something like that in Japan and saying, "What a wonderful era!" If you'd actually pulled someone from, say, 1600s England, they would also be living in a shadowy lamplit space. Um, you know, maybe their windows would be bigger. And he has a point about roofs, but uh, the. Maybe modernity came, you know, with its technology came to Japan from the West, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's that all of its modes are so inherently necessarily Western as he makes them. Another contrast he makes is between beauty, which he clearly connects with Japanese aesthetics and practicality, which he connects with American aesthetics, if you can even call them aesthetics at that point. How does the practical interfere with the beautiful? A lot of the stuff that he sees as interfering with the beautiful, I wouldn't so much call practical as convenient. Um, the fans, in particular. Um, and But they're only necessary, in his view, because you've chosen to build uh, in a Western style, um, walls of enormous thickness and then you filled your structure with all of these garish bright lights and now the place is is just stifling and so now you have to add fans just to make it livable um so in some ways these things are practical but they're meeting practical demands created by other <laughs> other choices that you've made um he seems to present the even you know the the things like the paper walls and the roofs and all the rest of it, um, the fans aren't necessary if you were living in that other space. It might even be more practical to build structures in the old in the old Japanese way, so that you don't need these practical things, this practical de- technology. Well, presumably it was right because that mode of architecture developed from an actual lived need. Right. I would think. Right. I mean, they didn't just happen to build uh, paper doors. They 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 did it because it suited something. I suspect. I mean, not being a history, not being a historian of Japanese architecture, I certainly couldn't tell you what. But things don't just happen. Right. Right. I mean, and it's not as if, and I don't think he wants to present it as if the Japanese were just this island of aestheticians who were making all of their decisions based solely on their beauty and none of it about their practicality. I think it's, it's, it's more about 
they created spaces that were beautiful within the kinds of constraints that their technology presented. Yeah, I th- and their environment presented, right? Because, I mean, the the sense that I get, at least, is that, you know, his big critique of fans in particular is that, you know, in the old way of living, you simply wouldn't occupy those, you know, spaces that the sun's beating down on. You would retreat to some other part of the village during those parts of the year. Right. And well, what's, what's interesting is, quote-unquote, technological advancement makes what was once comfortable uncomfortable. You become unable, if, if you have air conditioning, let's say, you, you become unable to sit in a room that's 82 degrees, even though your great-grandparents probably wouldn't have even thought about it being 82 degrees. Right. You know, So we have, right. we have these things that are designed for convenience or whatever, and then they make everything else, they make what was once convenient inconvenient. And that's, that's very interesting to me, especially with something as destructive and necessary as air conditioning. I mean, I can't sit in a room that's 82 degrees. And no. it's because I grew up with air conditioning, you know? Yeah. And and to, to make matters worse, like houses, and I, I'm sorry to be stuck on air conditioning, but I'm just thinking about uh, American architecture, I guess. Houses were, were once built um, to release and keep heat as necessary. Once air conditioning gets invented, they're not built that way anymore. So I live in an apartment that was built in 1988, and it's stifling hot. 12 months a year. And I'm, I'm certain that if this building had been built 70 years before that, it would be hotter than it would be if we didn't have air conditioning. But it, it would be much cooler than it is now because the building would be made for the weather. It would be made for the local environment instead of being an abstraction, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. The internal control of the environment makes the architecture itself no longer needing to take you know where you are in the world you know the local climate your latitude and so forth um you can build pretty much anything anywhere as long as the foundation will hold it um and it'll be basically the same because you have your 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 internal heat and air whereas um before that architecture was always this very dynamic relationship of space and what the local climate was. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of a, a scene from uh, Makioka Sisters, one of Tanazaki's novels. Uh, have have you read his novels? I've read Makioka Sisters, yeah. Interesting. Uh, cool. Because, you know, the, the three sisters are, you know, educated in sort of traditional Japanese manners. Uh, so, I mean, there is just a, a hilarious uh, comedy of manners that sets up every time the phone rings because, you know, the protocols, if you will, of Japanese manners are so ill-suited to someone speaking to you from not inside the house that when someone calls and asks for one of your sisters, I mean, it takes them three and a half pages to get the phone to that person. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that, that's the kind of dynamic I, I, I think of when I think of, you know these new technological intrusions as Tanizaki certainly considers them in the, in this essay. And, you know, it, it makes me think of that scene in Makioka sisters in a different light now. Um, you know, they're, uh, and I, and I say protocols, it makes them sound like C3PO, but their expectations, right. 
uh, <laughs> of what manners consist of, right? Uh, they are they get steamrolled basically by the telephone. It's it's and, disruptive. Right, right. And you know, I, I think of you know people my age. Uh, you know, I I still consider it really inconsiderate, you know, for people to send and receive text messages while other human beings are in physical proximity, right? For someone half my age, that is simply the way of things. Uh, but I'm in that, you know, weird space. Uh, I guess I'm the Tanazaki in this example, uh, where I consider that, you know, a, a barbaric intrusion on something that was good before. Why did we have to change it? Well, and the, right. the thing I would add to that is, to the extent you don't find new technologies disruptive, it's probably because you don't have a local cult- culture to disrupt. Say more about that. That's interesting. I, I You know, because the, you're talking about the telephone disrupting them. And the telephone's not something we think of as really having a disruptive effect. It, it, from our vantage point, it seems completely, uh, completely positive, or mostly positive at least. But so you have a you have a local culture that and this is going to lead us into our next question pretty well, I think you have a local culture that's been in place for thousands of years that has made incremental change. It's not like any culture ever stays the same. I mean, and you also can't talk about technology as if it's completely separate from culture. I get that. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to set up any easy binaries here, but you have a you have a culture that has progressed very slowly over a long period of time. And you then you, then you have some modern technology often coming not from somebody in the region, but from somebody outside and it comes in and disrupts as our world grows increasingly global i think we're going to feel the technological disruption less and less because we're we're already living in a culture that has been so thoroughly disrupted i can see that i can that see that sense. i mean to the to the extent that habits um etiquette uh ways of ways of working ways of living are already built around analogous technologies as those technologies improve we simply update our customs um but i can imagine if you were living in a culture in which um it's really rude to just sort of step into someone's space and make demanding questions of them without sort of insinuating yourself in and you know a, a respectable you know, sort of buffer zone of small talk and then sort of indirectly working your way around to a request that's not quite a request. You know, if if you have a if you have a culture that that works in that kind of modest, retired kind of way, phones just get up all in your biz and ask questions. And yeah, I, I, I could I could see that as, as, as just an endless rudeness. Or also yeah. if also if the mores of your culture are built heavily around body language. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then, like I said, then if, you know, someone calls, you answer the phone, they're already in your business, and then they say, can I speak to your sister? You have to go interpose yourself into her business. And, you know, like I said... Um, I'm not a gigantic fan of Makioka Sisters. I mean, it's not my favorite Japanese novel by any means. But there are certain scenes that are just hilarious precisely for those reasons that you're narrating, David. Right. Well, actually, something very similar happens in Gabriel Marcel's play The Broken World. 
Um, one of the reasons you know that this woman's life is kind of a hassle is that every time she and her husband start talking, the phone rings. And this is 1933, so it's still, you know, fairly early in the era where everybody would have their own phone. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we've already kind of moved into this section, so let's just talk about it. My, my favorite, maybe the most fascinating section to me is the one where Tanizaki daydreams about what Japan would have looked like if they hadn't been forced to keep up with Western views of progress. What does he say about how the technology would have developed differently? A few things uh, struck me as interesting in this section. One is he says that uh, magnetic amplification, uh, so you know what we think of you know, pretty simply as speakers, uh, would have been different. He says that the, the amplified music uh, that people try to play in Japan is almost always, uh, you know, German classical music, uh, simply because the very nuanced play of silence uh, in Japanese music doesn't work when you've got that electronic hum going in the background. Uh, so that's certainly uh, one example. Another one that he brings up is the notion that uh, the lighting system would have been different. So you know, to go back to that light and shadow play, he says that, you know, the aim of Western electric lighting seems to be uh, to fill any space and every inch of every space uh, with bright, garish light. And he says that uh, had Japanese inventors invented the light bulb, uh, probably would they would have been a lot less intrusive. They would have been a lot less of a blunt instrument. So uh, in those two cases, which are the ones that uh, jump out at me, uh, he seems to think that, you know, the character of the light bulb of of amplified sound transmission uh, take their character not from the limitations of what you can do with, you know, transistors and conductors and such, uh, but from a sort of Western character, uh, which I find charming, although from what you know little science that i've studied uh it seems a little bit naive i don't know uh it seems like that kind of refinement comes not with a different national origin but with improvements within the industry itself i mean am i am i getting that wrong michael because i mean like i said i mean this this struck me as you know like you said a daydream to be sure but another example of that uh sort of national essentialism i was talking about earlier i see what you're saying because I well let me let me see if I see what you're saying. Are you are you saying that speakers could be more like what he's describing, but only after the speaker as we know it was invented? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and in fact, I think speakers now can probably do more of what he's describing as what they would have done if Japanese had invented them. But I don't see that necessarily as a Japanese improvement, so much as an improvement in the refinement and fine-tuning possibilities within the technology itself and maybe the fact that I talk about it as the technology itself rather than as the white technology is my problem here but I mean you're we're we're wondering if the speaker could have been been invented as something other than what it was invented as right and so it's in some ways we're we're talking about a, a completely different piece of technology that that never existed and if it so you're saying new speakers can do what he's talking about. They would they got there by a route that would have been different than his hypothetical Japanese speaker would have gotten. Oh, I agree. I agree. But it seems like the nature of electromagnetic conductivity 
means that, I mean, you get to that through refining the basic machinery, not through, you know, a, an aesthetic consideration. But you, you get there by having some sort of goal, be it aesthetic or practical, in mind. And so... Right. I guess, I guess this might be my question, Michael. I mean, do you think that, you know, when speakers are first invented, the inventor said, hey, this hum in the background, isn't that awesome? We need more of that. No, but he said, hey, hey, look, this speaker, this speaker amplifies these things in a particular way. And he probably sat down in order to, to invent something that amplified certain ranges uh, of, of sound, I would think. So maybe our hypothetical Japanese speaker inventors would have sat down with a different goal for the speakers. And so it would have developed differently. Well, I mean, maybe those 1933 speakers are fine for blasting Wagner. But, yeah, but not for Satie. I mean, could you could you imagine? Oh, there's something to that. I mean, th- th- like like certainly not all of Western music is big and bombastic and breaks through the sound of an early phonograph. Yeah, my, well, one of my favorite historical facts about music is the crooner exists because they invented a particular type of microphone that would pick up the crooner. So in that sense, I don't think I don't think they're building the microphone so that Bing Crosby can have a career. I think it goes the opposite way, like Nathan is saying. They they invent. I think it's the ribbon mic. They they invent the ribbon mic, and all of a sudden, you don't have to scream into a megaphone to be heard over the big band. Yeah. Can, ah, okay, that makes go some good sense. Or whatever, you know. <laughs> you could. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One could. Bing Crosby could. <laughs> well, it, I mean, I kind of see his point. You know, in, in, in some ways, you know, um, technology tends to develop until it's good enough to suit most of our needs. Yeah, but and, what our needs are, are going to be different depending on the society it's being created for. Right. Like that, yeah, that, that, that point, point is grant. there. That point I'll grant, yeah. But if, but if most of the Western music that, he's hear, that he hears is coming through the phonograph, then that still is actually leaving out a lot of Western music. And so his impression that the technology is so fine-tuned to the needs of the culture is actually leaving a lot, of, a lot of the culture that he may just not have been exposed to. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I think he's got a point, maybe not as strong a point as he makes it, but he also, he, he also steps back and says, I'm not a scientist, I'm a novelist, and I'm thinking through the impact of culture on how technology develops and you know at that level i think i think i think he's making a good point you know we may we may want to be you know av nerds and you know poke at his argument but the notion that technology is developed around the needs of a culture um is still there you know maybe maybe we would have made like less bright light bulbs if if uh-huh. if if uh, gentle light was the optimum, um, but I remember when the first I remember long long ago, but um, remember when the first alternatives to the uh, the incandescent light, um, the compact fluorescence came out, and they were so harsh and alienating awful right my father still has just them the in worst. his kitchen they're they're just i mean how could you sit underneath them yes 
and 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 that's that's our that's our uh, Tanazaki that's our Tanazaki moment right where the the compact fluorescents are not giving us what we want I I used some of the gentler compact fluorescents until they came out with the LEDs and LEDs do a much better job of a warm yellow light you know right right and and I guess to take it in another direction you know I mean um and then this is a hypothetical situation that's probably entirely unfair to the essay, but I can imagine <laughs> Tanizaki hearing dubstep and saying that, you know, these Western robots on amphetamines invented musical instruments <laughs> so that they could make these particular sounds. And I'm thinking, well, no, I mean, dubstep is taking basically different sounds of feedback and, you know, arranging them so that they are a new kind of art form. But... But, and I don't know the answer to this, has the technology involved, evolved since dubstep was invented in order to make it easier or more interesting? dubstep here. That I don't know. Because I think you're probably getting both, right? You think about like uh, early hip-hop and synth-pop have these horrible drum machines. And, and I mean, <laughs> you mean that, awesome drum machines. Right, yeah, the 808s or whatever. So, so those... those Forms of music become possible because of the drum machine, but then because we want those forms of music, we evolve the technology until the drum machines are better. So I think it probably is a little bit of both. The evolution of technology is, um, well, it runs both ways. Did, yeah, did I'll guys, grant the dialectic. I'll grant the dialectic. Did you guys think of uh, Edward Burke when you were reading that section? I I could not stop yeah, thinking Edmund about reflection. Edmund Burke. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, uh, you wrote Edward Burke in the notes, and I'm like, the alderman from Chicago? <laughs> Whatever his name is. <laughs> I, I couldn't stop thinking about reflections on the revolution in France, where he talks about how conservatives aren't against progress. They just think progress should be an organic process instead of something forced on people and i i, I think right. that tanizaki is from the very people similar. rather than being imposed upon the people right so yeah. things change there's no such thing as a static culture but they don't change quickly they change over time and as the need arises there's a there's actually kind of an example within within the japanese culture and its history of exposure to western technology um comparing the firearm to things like the steam locomotive and the electric light and all the sorts of things that he talks about. There was this brief moment in the 16th, early 17th century in which Japan was exposed to Western technology and the cutting edge Western technology was firearms. Um, the, the sort of mat, the matchlock rifle, but then for reasons uh, Japan was closed to uh, visitors from the West, except for um, one very particular location, and even then you had to be Dutch. And yet, they kept the, ma the matchlock technology because it vastly... It, it changed battlefield dynamics and um, the, the martial culture of, you know... The, the Tokugawa shogunate era was very much about being efficient in the battlefield. So they, they adopted them. They adopted the matchlock. It worked, but over the course of, over the course of, of, of decades, over the course of generations, um, those, those weapons begin to look more and more aesthetically Japanese. They look the, the, 
the rifles blend more and more with the look of their other arms and armor. Um, they start, at, so by the time, you know, you get to uh, the 19th century, when Perry sort of, you know, you know, pulls into the harbor and refuses to leave, they have firearms. They're very, very old-fashioned by European standards, but they also look very Japanese, even though they were introduced from the West. Um, so there was this time in which the technology was introduced, but then it was adapted. But that's something that takes time. And what he's reflecting on here is there's just too much, too fast, nothing gets quite assimilated, and the cha it's changing too much of the fundamental culture for the assimilation really to happen too much of too much of the sort of the the cultural ground groundwork is being displaced by this infusion of western stuff that there's not enough there in which it can be grown and cultivated into a more uh into a local version if that makes sense yeah yeah and it, like i said this technology becomes disruptive and and the more disruptive it becomes kind of the less disruptive it becomes because the culture that it's disrupting no longer exists. Well, late in the essay, he moves from contrasting America and Japan and instead contrasts the city with the country. And in particular, he's interested in the difference in the cuisine between these two places. David, what does he have to say about that difference? And did it ring true to you in the era of the Food Network and the Travel Channel? That's kind of hard for me. Um kind of hard for me to answer because the only places I mean, he's, he's talking he has this long um description of how um this really good sushi was made and it is you know he says it, it, it's not technically difficult but it takes a long time to do and you have to really care to do it right. He's, you know, you have to make sure there's no moisture in the rice. And um, he, he's sort of walking through this process and he's and talking about this, this one place in the country where he had this amazing sushi that was unlike, you know, anything that, that, that was so much better than, than what he'd had um, in the cities. And... Uh, he says, uh, a sampling of various regional cuisines suggests that in our day, country people have far more discriminating palates than city people, and that in this respect, they enjoy luxuries we cannot begin to imagine. Um, part of that he connects to the idea of the old fleeing, old, old people and people who like the old ways fleeing from the, the frenetic speed and alien change of the city into the country. So the country becomes like a, a conservative space. Uh, but there's also just the pace. Um, I would imagine if I was running a restaurant in 1930s Tokyo, um, that I would have to be fast and efficient. And I would have to, uh, I would have to produce, you know, a, a sufficient quantity of food at a sufficient level of quality and freshness for those who want to eat it now. Whereas the process that he describes for his, you know, for his country sushi, I can't imagine anyone doing that in the industrial space of a restaurant kitchen. 
it's something that would happen in a domestic space for for family and for friends for personal enjoyment or for hospitality um, in which the process is part of the leisure of the enjoyment um, and that he associates with country that makes a lot of sense to me um, now these days we want we want our 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 sort of decadent country comforts with city convenience yeah well that's what i was thinking that i mean is there anybody in the world who would say well the place to go if you want good sushi is the country maybe maybe the country of japan i guess yeah i mean we aren't we are in japan so but but i but But i I do know people will say if you want good biscuits and gravy you got to go to my grandma's house in the country that's true yeah the the kind of home cooking thing or or if you want good biscuits and gravy go to this one terrible gas station yeah that's that's right that's right right. um you know the 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 hole in the wall you know you know what people you know what people say about barbecue restaurants in which you know the health rating is inversely proportionate to the quality Um, that's true though it's true So, you know, I, I, I think, you know, he, he has a point, you know, but, but we want, you know, we have this, we have a food culture that wants its awesome sushi and it wants it now. And, you know, I guess they've developed ways to approximate that. And there are restaurants that make the, that make the promises of, you know, of locally sourced and, and, uh, you know, prepared fresh and, you know, and they're, and they're making all of those claims um, but they're happening within a consumer context. Um, they're not happening within a hospitality context. They're not happening within necessarily the context of someone who just really loves good sushi so much. They're going to take the time to do it right and then eat it slowly in their nature bathroom. <laughs> I'm not sure they eat sushi in their bathroom. I, well, but the, the, there was something of the attitude of that beginning of the, of the essay and the end of the essay, and he's like, "Oh, the sushi," and just made me think of, "Oh, the bathroom." Um, but but that just that attention to what would be a very simple pleasure, right? Like sushi's not exotic for this guy, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the equivalent Japanese. probably would be barbecue, and nobody's going to go to the middle of the city for their barbecue. Right. Unless right, they don't know any better. Right. Especially if they don't know any better. <laughs> but I, I'm interested in the way that um, poor people food becomes rich people food. That that just happens over and over again. And then you really do go into the city for it. You think about something like lobster, which was originally food they just give to the servants because nobody else wants it. And now lobster is super expensive. And if you want it good, you'll go to a... Well, unless you're in Maine, you'll go to a fancy seafood restaurant. I guess if you're in Maine, you might go to a lobster shack. Well, it's because poverty gets alighted with authenticity, and authenticity is a very, very marketable commodity. Interesting stuff. Well, we are rapidly running out of time, uh, so let's go around the horn here and uh, call our listeners' attentions to a point or idea that I haven't referenced yet. Uh, Gilmore, you go first. Well, the passage I'm interested in is on uh, page 18 in the edition that's going to be linked in the show notes. And it's where uh, Tanizaki has a rare moment where he steps back and he gets philosophical and he says this, I'll quote directly, 
The quality that we call beauty, however, must always grow from the realities of life, and our ancestors, forced to live in dark rooms, presently came to discover beauty in shadows, ultimately to guide shadows towards beauty's ends. So he will grant, in that passage anyway, uh, that there really isn't anything essentially oriental, whatever that means, uh, about the preference for shadows, but this is something that grows out of a historically contingent, a geographically contingent way of life, uh, and then later on becomes uh, aestheticized, so to speak. So uh, that's one of those moments where, you know, Tanizaki takes a step back, so to speak, although I realize that's probably a Western move as well, uh, and I, I appreciated that move. David, what do you got? I found his discussion of Japanese theater and the role of uh, light and shadow revealing and concealing in, uh, he talks about uh, uh, kabuki, he talks about no theater, and he talks about puppet theater. Um, and no theater is his is his favorite. But uh, I, th I thought that was a really, a really interesting discussion about how the the aesthetic of e of of each of those forms um, depends on really the limitations of lighting in the areas in the eras in which they were invented, um, and it made me think of things like um, cheesy monster movie effects from you know the you know fifties drive-in movies or. Uh, the the sorts of things that used to that were convincing on the movie screen when it was shot on film, but then it got when it got translated to kind of the first high definition TVs. Do you remember those when when it would translate an old an, an older film into high def, and suddenly it suddenly it looked like like a terrible soap opera in terms of its quality. Yeah, so, suddenly Yoda is a puppet. Yeah, ex exactly, exactly. And Spider-Man just looks like a a man in his pajamas walking around, and it's really I'm embarrassed for the man. <laughs> um, but I I thought that was a really a really interesting discussion about how the how the limitations really do create the art, and when those limitations go away, a lot of the artistic choices are no longer effective or coherent. Um, and I, I, I just, I found that, 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 that part of the essay really, really fascinating. You know, it makes me think of the, uh, the rage for record players as opposed to CD players, even yeah. though, I mean, unless you're, unless your equipment is really, really stellar, uh, you're getting better quality out of the CD player or maybe, maybe not the MP3, but uncompressed audio. Uh, and yet I agree with them. A lot of stuff does sound better on the record player because it's kind of lo-fi, lower-fi. Yeah, there's something there's something harsh sometimes about the the full range of audio. I mean, analog is just closer to nature, man. There's some truth to that. Uh, anyway, uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to get in touch with us about what we left off, or if you'd like to explain Japanese aesthetics or technology to us, I'm sure we'd love to hear it. Our email address is uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, and our website is christianhumanist.org. David, what do we got going on next week? Well, next week, I would like to look at a collection of poems that I only discovered really recently, and 
I just really want to talk about it because I'm fascinated. It's by James Weldon Johnson and it's called God's Trombones. Oh, I love God's Trombones. Well, we're going to talk about it next week, man. One of my first conference presentations was on James Weldon Johnson on his uh, on his book Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man. Cool. Well, uh, until then, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. Till next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubb saying, let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger.